Good morning. Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Kent. Whoever you are, we welcome you. Wherever you come from, we welcome you. Whomever you love, we welcome you. And the Reverend Stephen Protzman, your settled minister, and it is my privilege and pleasure to serve as your worship associate for today's service. I am joined by Melissa Jeter, who is a commissioned lay minister from Toledo. Samuel Prince from Sandusky and Oberlin. And Oberlin, yes. And Sir Robert from Akron. So welcome to all of you. I think they want to applaud you, and I'm going to let them. <laughs> Today we continue on our path toward racial justice and celebrate the Unitarian Universalist Association's Promise and Practice Sunday. As Unitarian Universalists, we light a flame within a chalice as a symbol of sanctuary and safety to unite us in our worship, to hold before us our ideals, and to remind us of the ongoing search for the light of truth. And our chalice lighter this morning is Raylan. You'll find throughout the service this morning that we are centering words and writings by people of color. That's what this service is about. I would invite you now to join me in the words for the chalice lighting written by Reverend Rebecca Savage. You'll find those in your order of service. We light our flaming chalice as a beloved people united in love and thirsting for restorative justice. May it melt away the tethers that uphold whiteness in our midst May it spark in us a spirit of humility. May it ignite in us radical love that transforms our energy into purposeful action. This is the chalice of audacious hope. This chalice shines a light on our shared past, signaling our intention to listen deeply, reflect wisely, and move boldly toward our highest ideals.
call to worship is by Viola Abbott. We are Unitarian Universalists. When we lift up our seven principles, some of, them, some of us think of them as a form of theology, but they are more important to our collective than that. They do not tell us what we should believe. They tell us how we should be. They tell us how we should act in the larger world and with each other. We are brought here today by the fact that Unitarian Universalism has fallen short of the image that was presented to the world and to many of those who embrace this religion. But we are also brought here today by the truth that Unitarian Universalism has shifted course to move toward a place of wholeness, a place that perhaps never existed for us as a denomination. It has been a long and sometimes unforgiving road to today, but we are here today because we are mindful of that past and because we have hope for the future. We want the practice of this faith to be a fulfilling manifestation of its promise. Open your hearts, seek new ways of understanding. Come, let us worship together. I've got a story to tell you today. I am enough by Grace Byers. Like the sun, I am here to shine. Like the voice, I am here to sing. Like the bird, I am here to fly and soar high over everything. Like the trees, I am here to grow. Like mountains, here to stand. Like time, I am here to be and be everything I can. Like the champ, I am here to fight. Like the heart, I am here to love. Like a ladder, here to climb. And like the air, to rise above. Like the wind, I'm here to push. Like a rope, I'm here to pull. Like the rain, I'm here to pour and drip and fall until I'm full. Like the moon, I'm here to dream. Like the student, I'm here to learn. Like the water, here to swell like fire here to burn, like the winter I'm here, like the winner I'm here to win. And if I don't get up again, I know that I may sometimes cry, but even then I'm here to try. I'm not meant to be like you. You're not meant to be like me. Sometimes we will get along, and sometimes we will disagree. I know that we don't look the same. Our skin, our eyes, our hair, our frame. But that does not dictate our worth. We both have places here on earth. 
And in the end, we are right here to live a life of love, not fear. To help each other when it's tough, to say together, I am enough. I have a poem to share with you. I don't want to mourn black girl blues, though there are times I really want to be seen. I just really want to do my own thing. Maybe I'll jump at the sun and smile, knowing that what's in my head and on my heart is a beautiful work of art. Sometimes I get angry and internalize it. I get real stubborn about what I know I'm about, what I know I have the skills to do. I smirk when people say, who knew? I could be invisible, and I thought for a long time that I was. As I was looking out and they were looking upon, what, what did they see? Surely it was not me just projections of their imaginings and prescriptive roles of enmeshment and codependency. Nah, they never really see me. Because the eyes, they do deceive, and their heart is never near to me, and their mind is so full of scientific designs and enlightenment, they know, so they are closed to me. So in many ways, I am free. Free when I breathe deeply on my Zafu and face Tina, black Jesus, the brown naked goddesses, the triune of scarf-covered brown-shaded women with their hands upturned in prayer, as well as the storyteller figurine on all fours covered in tiny children from Ecuador. I am free when I read Susan Taylor, former editor of Essence Magazine, words that say, let go. And I breathe out and see that love is truly free. Just let go. I straighten my back. My second chakra opens. I listen and hear. Grow up. I look at Tina and I hear her say, I don't really want to find no more. There are all kinds of people in this world. Some will die for you. Some will lie to you. And then I'm orally directed to Ruthie singing Maya, saying, Pretty women wonder where my secret lies. I'm not cute or built to suit a fashion model size. But when I start to tell them, they think I'm telling lies. One more deep breath. And I have centered myself for that practice 
that is ineffable connection, an assertion to that which flows through me and every living thing. And I know it's true because that's when the cat cries out, I really won't mourn, though I sing the blues. Maya said that my ticket was bought, my ancestors played to do. first reading is from Rachel Kadzi Ganza, who wrote about Toni Morrison, author of Beloved, A Mercy, and Home, in the New York Times in August 2015. Morrison was raised to compete on broader stages with people from all walks of life, and she wasn't used to thinking of white people as the estranged other. At Howard, she wanted to write a term paper on the role of black people in Shakespeare, but her professor, 
thought it was low class to read about and research black life. It also made her uneasy and deeply disappointed that at Howard, skin color worked as a caste system. This was something she had only read about and she found it off-putting and silly. But in Washington, she also encountered for the first time lunch counters she could not sit at, fountains she could not drink from, and sores where her money was no good. The confines of the campus acted as a space of blessed comfort. She simply could not take segregation seriously. I think it's a theatrical thing, she told me. I always felt that everything else was a theater. They didn't really mean that. How could they? It was too stupid. So our second reading is a tweet from Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, who's doing revelatory, beautiful work on the Poor People's Campaign. How does God want to save us from the generational trauma of this nation's original sin? A nonviolent army of people who have been rejected are coming together in the Poor People's Campaign to build a third reconstruction. Does it feel odd to you to explain who you are to beings outside yourself? Have you ever done that? Just think about it. When was the first time you realized that you were white? I think I was five years old when I learned that I might need to explain myself. I walked to school with a friend across the street and we would hold hands. My mother followed behind us until one morning my friend said he could no longer hold hands with me. He said, my sister told me that black people have something funny on their hands. My heart was racing as my mom stepped in and held her hands out to this little white boy and said, do you see anything on my hands? And he studied her hands. And then he looked up into my mother's face and he piped up, my sister's going to hell, isn't she? At five, I was broken every time someone had a perception that I did not belong right where I was, just as I am. Like the reading, Toni Morrison asked, how could they take segregation seriously? It was stupid. Toni Morrison writes literary fiction with the quiet, unapologetic strength of a mountain. And it is like melted gold connecting me to the broken pieces of myself. That quiet, unapologetic strength is what it took to survive in a small rural still mill town. As the song says, I was born by the river the Ohio River in southeastern Ohio. 
It is the very tip of Appalachia and also falls somewhere outside the category of being Appalachia. Did you know that black folks live there? Through research, I know that my maternal family migrated from Georgia and possibly Florida, while my paternal family migrated from North and South Carolina. In Union, South Carolina, there is a large Jeter plantation. In Brevard, North Carolina, my mother's, my father's mother attended a Rosenwald school. Rosenwald schools were developed in the South after Reconstruction. Booker T. Washington of Tuskegee Institute and W.E.B. Du Bois of Harvard, along with Julius Rosenwald, president of Sears and Roebuck, set the plan for these schools to educate black folks. My father's mother had a 12th grade education, consequently. She was a pianist and a guitar player. She liked Schubert. Through migration north, my closest ancestors bequeathed to me this dubious experiential gift of being one of very few black folks in a very rural still mill town. When I was five, my mother told me, one day you will have a large yard to play in. It was my father who told me how it really happened. A new subdivision was being built. My maternal grandfather admonished my mother that they don't want you out there. There was no money for segregated schools in this town. So my grandfather experienced the kind of racism where white folks burn crosses on your lawn. I tried to imagine what it was like to go to school with kids whose parents burn crosses on your lawn. My grandfather never trusted any white person. My mother could only recall one white person ever being at her house growing up, and he only visited as far as the front porch. Times had changed. It was the mid-70s. My father was a Vietnam veteran, and he was one of the few, statistically, to be able to use the GI Bill for education and assistance with buying a house. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 made it illegal to discriminate based on race, color, national origin, and sex. Did you know that that last part was supposed to be a joke? They put it in at the end so they, was hope, they were hoping it wouldn't pass. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act. My father was astute, if not stubborn. I was standing outside of the house for over an hour with the realtor hemming and hawing. Finally, I said, look, lady, are you going to sell me this house or do I have to get my lawyer? My family became the first black family in the suburbs. There were no crosses burned on our meticulous lawn that my parents would let no one 
two legs or four walk on or play in. And I still have a hard time crossing lawns. I think I was in college when I figured out it might be okay to do that. Um, when we weren't home, the neighbors just came into our backyard. I know this because the neighbor told us when we had arrived home one day, could this have been a microaggression? I wasn't around for that conversation, but consequently my father built a privacy partition around the side of the house. My mother built a natural fence of evergreens around the backyard. My father was an educated man. He was in graduate school of some kind most of my life. He had an MBA from West Virginia University, and later, after another migration, my family, uh, I saw him receive a graduate degree from Wayne State University. I think he studied physics. In Michigan, I remember being sent to Saturday science schools at the University of Michigan, like every Saturday for a very long time. <laughs> My father did not share the limited ideas people had about him. Several times, my father took tests in the steel mill to move up, and he would pass them. Every time he took the test, he would pass. Finally, and this is what my father told me, he said, we don't care how many times you pass this test, we ain't hiring no niggas in this job. I'm not sure what happened after that. All I know is that my dad was one, maybe the first black man in a management position in the steel mill. And even this was not without its struggles. My father's story reminds me of the struggles of Egbert Ethelred Brown, an early Unitarian minister. Have you heard of him? Brown was a minister of a Unitarian church in Harlem. In black pioneers in a white denomination, Mark Morrison Reed writes, the underlying paternalism in the Unitarian attitude towards blacks becomes apparent. When looking at the struggles Brown had with the American Unitarian Association, in the faith in which he found hope, the allies were few. Do you know who John Haynes Holmes is? If you don't, I'm going to tell you, like my father used to tell me when I wanted to know something, go look it up. <laughs> Brown left his home in Jamaica to go study in Meadville. He left his home and his church. He declared he could be no other than a Unitarian minister. When he returned to start a church in Jamaica, the American Unitarian Association thought of it more as a missionary, a mission to uplift blacks. Not so much to share the beacon of light of Unitarianism. Later, Brown left for the United States 
built his church in Harlem. The American Unitarian Association said, there were only 50 people there, and we think they were mostly his family. That, that was not true. But how does that statement resonate with you? I want you to know that Brown and many more saw and do see the hope, the beacon of light from the chalice. Still, it was and is a struggle. Take a minute to think about the recent blatant incident against Christina Rivera on the UUA board where her child received, where her child received a racist letter. I am telling you these stories so we can gain esteem and resilience. Hurts must be named and recognized before there can be a transformation in our relationships. What I hope is that there could be a bold love beginning here. Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the New Poor People's Campaign, says that the way God would have us deal with the original sin of race is by all the rejected folks coming together, getting up and coming together. He also said that we must always have hope that those who we oppose in the pursuit of justice will one day be reconciled with us. There have been promises broken in this faith. The hope of Unitarian Universalism is that we can love beyond belief, that we can accept and we can accept our direct experiences in the process of radically caring for each other. We are all called to the promise and practice of this faith when we can be with one another and accept one another as enough, when we can listen curiously with our hearts open, when we can really care for someone and accept their journey, it changes us. But it also leads us to seek justice. And that is a bold love. My understanding is that this congregation is being called to racial justice. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, sister. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you. I came here with Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism and allies because I heard that your heart was in a holy place. Can the beginning of a bold love be near? Yes. I am here to call us into that transcendent mystery of bold love that is beyond belief and most assuredly beyond the illusionary barriers that disconnect us. James Luther Adams said that our liberal religion holds that the resources, divine and human, that are available for the achievement of meaningful change 
justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. Could that be the beginning of a bold love? Is a bold love near here? Yes. The beginning of a beloved community that affirms us all? My struggle is your struggle. And that is the reason why I am here to call you in, beloved. As I was driving here, not driving, as I was sitting here much earlier and I heard of the songs in which you were chosen for the service, there was nothing in me that could actually think of there is more love in here. And then you began to say there's more peace in here. Then you began to say there's more hope and there's more joy in here. And then you began to say a change is going to come. A change is going to come. I think of the change as a promise. I think of the, there is more love as a verb, a practice in which we should all do, which we have to do. Today, my friends, we have an extraordinary opportunity to dig deeply into our theology, not just as a faith, but more so as an individual as we begin to look at the limitations in which our history has. Society itself have opened us up into various ways into the cultures of white supremacy, of race and racism that exist in every fabric of our lives. It exists here in Kent, Unitarian Universalists. Within the news around us, it always says about this is what we should do and this is what we should not do. The, the rhetoric and the policies does not equate itself because we could still see the harm that's being done to both black and people of color. As a faith denomination, we are trying to be on that leading edge, trying to be on that leading edge of addressing our history which upholds a culture of white supremacy, racism, and oppression. And I know, friends, it's difficult for us to do this. It's difficult for us sometimes when we've been asked to raise a Black Lives Matter banner in various churches, various places, how that causes some consternation. We sometimes are at a places to whereby, if we are to uphold our justice, in which we speak about so often, and the mission in which we have as Kent, we have to live in within the promises in which we have made as covenantal as a means of people who, we don't, have the, we don't have a creed as you use, but we have a covenant, the ways to how you and I should act. So if I am to embrace you, you are to embrace me. 
If what matters to me, it's gonna matter to you. So if my black life matter, honor the mattering of my black life. As a member of the Black Lives Unitarian Universalist Collective, and there's only five of us, and we spread ourselves sometimes, and, but I'm fortunate to be here in Ohio, so I could do stuff like this. But I come and I speak to, and I encourage us to look at the ways how our lives are being centered. How do we center our lives? Do we center whiteness, or do we center inclusion? See, I didn't say diversity, I said inclusion. That means the bylaws, whatever we have, how is that being an image of our inclusivity? A survey in which Black Lives UU had conducted last year, it states this, whether or not they are a part of a congregation, most black UUs feel a deep sense of isolation, white, Dominant culture gets in the way of communal experiences and serves as an exclusionary force in church life. Black people, when they show up in ways that are culturally divergent from white, middle class, and upper class culture, do not feel welcome. Let me give you an example of that. About six years ago, seven years ago, I was at a leadership of a a UUOMD, Ohio Meadville District Convention in which they had for leaders in Shaker Heights, Ohio. So I'm sitting there and I'm taken in, there was worship, there was you know, everything, the workshops were going on, but something was churning inside of me. It kept churning. It kept churning like a, uh, uh, you a meat grinder, you all know about a meat grinder that meats up and it churns the meat and you put the red meat in. Some of us don't eat meat, but that's okay. You know, <laughs> you eat the red meat in and you churn it out and it comes out. Yeah, it was churning up inside of me. And I began to wonder, what is it? So as the session went on, on, boom, over, at the convener at the very end, I said, is there any questions? I trembled. Should I raise the topic or not? What's going to happen if I put my hands up? So I said, ah, you go for it. <laughs> put my hand up. What I am seeing here, and I asked the question, I said, am I the only black person here? It could have been people of color. But my eyes told me that am I the only black person here? There was a hush over the audience. The convener said, well, we will talk about this later. On my way out, but, 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 don't, don't judge it yet. <laughs> On my way up the stairs, one of the leaders grabbed my arm and said, we need to talk, yeah. I was open to having the conversation about why is it that black leaders are not amongst us. And here is where the promise and the practice comes into view. The promise and the practice gives you us a chance because we cannot do anything without having resources. 
Okay, there's a church building. In many, in many places, you need that resource. So in the matter of trying to make sure that black, black and brown lives are centered amongst us, there is a need for a promise. And the promise came in view of the $5.3 million in which the UUA said that will be raised. Now, black lives, you did not walk out of there with a check in their hands. Let's just get that clear. Let's just get that clear. There were no checks that was given to Black Lives UU on the day the promise was made. But it's with the help of congregations as Kent, which helps to put us towards that $5.3 million. And then it's the fact that Black Lives UU could be an organization of their home which would help Black Lives to be a part of Unitarian Universalism. We do love this faith. Let me just say that too. But how could we be a part of the faith in which we love? How could the voices be centered in a, in a certain way that gives homage and reverence towards who we are? It is not just a duty, but it is a moral compass and commitment in which we all have to be a part of, yes. The promise and the practice of our faith campaign, it represents our UUA commitments to raise that invested funds in leadership and organization of black lives. And you, Kent, is here to be a part of that. And I remember three years ago, I was on General Assembly Planning Committee at that time, and in Portland, there was this infusion of young people that came through the doors on that Saturday afternoon that saying black lives matter and we want justice now. Imagine, you're sitting there and all of a sudden you hear this commotion coming through the doors of the General Assembly. What are we gonna do about this? And then to culminate that, in 2016, when there was a raising of funds of $68,000 in one hour at General Assembly that was made to, to say, yes, we will work with you. But it hasn't always have been like that. We remember what happened back in 1968, right? I see a couple of heads are being shaken here. But let me help you to paint the picture, there was a bunch of black UUs who walked out of General Assembly because they weren't being funded. The promise in which the UUA had made at that time, they did not live up to that promise of assisting the black UUs to carry out their work. So this is why the promise and the practice is here. The promise, this is the way we love each other. And the practice is always is to work in harmony with that love. Now you may be wondering sometimes, what is it that Black Lives UU has been doing within all these times? And I forgot to mention at the first service, here is what is called a blue box. Some of us have heard of the blue box. The blue box have the inspirations for everyone. Let me repeat it for everyone. We all could subscribe to it. 
we all could be a part of that. So yes, as the promises are being made now, as to the ways of how we should live our lives, therefore, let us live into the deepness of where our faith is, as far as the way as to how we look at each other and the ways to how we get to practice that life. Let me also make another point is that to date, as of last week, there were $3.8 million which have been raised towards that $5.3 million. So yes, friends, you could be a part of this. You could be a part of infusing with your help to reach that promise and the goal in which, in which we have. So, a change is gonna come. As the song said, yes it is, yes it is. Each month we dedicate a Sunday to supporting agencies, ministries, and organizations in the Kent community and beyond that serve those in need. This month's special collection today benefits Black Lives UU. The Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, our president, says, BLUU is a national ministry of the UUA for and by black identified Unitarian Universalists. BLUU is a community that lifts up the lives and stories and the leadership of those who have been marginalized and silenced. This offering, she says, is an invitation to live our faith more fully by supporting BLUU and its work to help our faith become more radically inclusive, justice-centered, multiracial, and multi-generational. Please make checks payable to the UU Church of Kent with BLUU on the memo line or use a pew envelope marking the special collection. I invite us to be bold to live out our faith as fully and as generously as possible. Reverend Rebecca Savage, spirit of life, spirit of love, we have gathered under the banner of a shared faith. We are born of a welcoming grace that extends and receives love. We are touched by the ways we have fallen short of who we strive to be, and we here are reborn, forged by a greater courage. Let us go from this place encouraged and refreshed for the journey ahead. May it be so, and my friends, together we can make it so. Amen.